Verse 18 brought us to a, a natural place to stop because James had encouraged us to treat trials and difficulties as opportunities to grow in maturity. He'd warned us about the destructive power of temptation, the way it leads into sin and eventually into death. But he said, we shouldn't be discouraged because our Heavenly Father, the Father of lights, as he calls him, does not change. He's always giving us the best, and the best that he has given us is new birth by the word of truth. In other words, we are a kind of first fruits of his new creation. And that's great, isn't it, to know that you are the first stage in God's new creation. So we come to verses 19 and 20. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the the word implanted in you, which can save you. Now if you feel passionate about something, you're apt to become angry and defensive if someone criticizes or demeans it. And this last week, Richard Dawkins was given another airing on Radio 4. Now, I have great respect for his intellect, but his insistence that science and religion are at war with one another seems to me to be incomprehensible. There are scientists of equal eminence, for instance, Sir John Polkinghorne, who used to be the professor of, uh, let's get it right, mathematical physics at Cambridge University, who's a Templeton Prize winner in the research into the interface between science and religion. People like him see no conflict between science and religion, whatever. And yet, Mr. Dawkins is allowed to go on convincing the public that they are in implacable enmity against one another, that they're mutually exclusive. It's absolute rubbish. It demonstrates his prejudice, but people believe him, and that makes me angry. It makes me angry, too, that four people had to take their case to the European court because they are stopped from expressing their Christian faith openly. Now, you and I grew up in a world which was guaranteed religious freedom. Now, it seems that a nurse who's been wearing a confirmation crucifix for years and years and years, which has caused no problem whatsoever to the people for whom she's been caring for decades, is now told that she can't wear it on health and safety grounds. And that makes me angry, and I dare say it makes you angry too. But where does our anger get us? Apart from a rise in our blood pressure. Actually, it doesn't get us very far, does it? No, it doesn't. And so this word from James is very, very apposite. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. Sometimes, you know, we have to remember Proverbs 15, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Sometimes it's better to lose an argument, or at least not to insist on being right, (laughs) than to win it and lose the person we're trying to influence. 
intellectual propositions are easily forgotten. Aggressive, aggressive, overbearing behavior is not. So let's have a look at verse 21. Verse 21 is a hinge verse. Get rid of all moral filth and evil, and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word implanted in you which can save you. James is using a an, uh, 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 an idiom which is common in, elsewhere in the New Testament. It refers to taking clothes off. Get rid of means take off the old clothes, put on the new ones. He's not only asking us to stop doing something, get rid of all moral filth, he's asking us to start doing something because discipleship is never passive. But note that he says, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Now, what's he talking about? He's actually talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jeremiah reminded us of the fact that God plans, it is God's plan, to make a new covenant with his people, which is totally different to the old covenant, which was no good because it was simply based on rules and regulations. He says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them out of the land of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Humbly accept the word planted in you. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit, first of all, awakens us to our need of forgiveness. And then he showers upon us all the gifts that he has to give. And yesterday evening's gathering, when we called the church together, was part of the way in which we're seeking to discover those gifts that everyone has. But not only does the Holy Spirit do that, He nurtures the word that has been planted in you. Over the last two weeks, I've been a grass widow. My wife has been off looking after our grandchildren in Newcastle. And uh, you can guess this, can't you, by looking at my wasted form and weary, broken-down appearance. I've had to look after myself. And not only have I had to look after myself, I've had to water the plants. All over the house, there are little notes saying, don't forget to water the plants. Don't forget to water the plants. And so when I've been sitting, looking out into the garden, seeing the plants wilting on a very hot day, I've taken my watering can and done the business. I've looked after them. I've nurtured them. Because without that watering, they would be wilting and dying, and I would be in big trouble. Now, the Holy Spirit nurtures the life implanted in us. And one of the ways, or rather one of the ways in which we we might describe his work, is by using the word sanctifies. It's not a word we use very often. But you know, 
If justification by faith is the jewel in the crown of the gospel, then sanctification ought to be there as well. That's another jewel. We must always keep a balance. On the one hand, if we see the Christian life as a gradual progression from sinfulness to holiness, eventually arriving at perfection, we're going to be sadly a bit disappointed because this side of heaven, perfection is not on the agenda. On the other hand, if we accept second-rate discipleship as the norm, we'll never make any progress at all. Now, James isn't only telling us to clean up our act in verse 21, get rid of all moral filth. He's giving us the assurance that the Holy Spirit is at work. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And who planted that word? The Holy Spirit did. Charles Wesley wrote, Breathe, O breathe thy Holy Spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit, let us find thy promised rest. Take away the love of sinning, Alpha and Omega be. End of faith is its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Now, you know, in most hymn books, but not in this one, that verse is left out of the hymn, Love Divine or Love's Excelling. You've got three verses normally, but in our hymn book, we've got four. And I'm so pleased we've got four, because although that verse seems to imply that there is a point to which Christians can come when they've stopped sinning altogether, take away the love of sinning, Alpha and Omega B, although it seems to imply that, I'm sure Wesley would agree with me. There's a dangerous statement. <laughs> I'm sure he would, though, that we've got to go on battling with the old human nature all through our lives. It's a constant, unending, unceasing war against an old human nature which has to be nailed to the cross every day. One of the most encouraging statements I've ever heard from a pulpit was, meet my old man, not my husband. As my mother would always refer to my, my father as my old man, but not my husband. Meet my old man. He's my old human nature. He's dead, but he won't lie down. We've got constantly to nail the old human nature to the cross. It's a daily crucifixion. But nevertheless, we can sing those glorious words. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. There is a way in which we can be drawn closer to God, in which we can be sanctified. You don't mind me quoting old hymns, do you? The 930 congregation don't like it at all, but that's their problem. Another of Charles Wesley's hymns. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free. You see, that's what he always wanted. A heart that always feels the blood so freely shed for me. A heart resigned Submissive, meek, my dear Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. Oh, don't you want that kind of Christianity? That's what I want, that's what I long for. And that's what the Holy Spirit can give us. It is possible. Maybe not perfection, but sanctification. 
closer and closer, nearer and nearer to God. And of course, the nearer we get to the light, the more shadow, the, the, the sharper the shadows of our sins seem to be. If you're aware of your sins, praise God. That awareness was given you by the Holy Spirit so that he can bring you closer to the cross, to forgiveness, to repentance, to new life. And then in verses 27 down to verse 25, we have a rather crazy picture. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently at the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Well, maybe you can remember your reflection, but to use another metaphor which makes precisely the same point, you know the experience, don't you, of going up the stairs to get something, and when you get upstairs, you forget what you've gone upstairs to get. So you have to go down again to remember what it was, and then you have to go back upstairs again hoping against hope that you don't forget it again, to get what you went upstairs to get. Now, that may be good exercise, remembering and forgetting and remembering and forgetting, but it's no way to live the Christian life. We can't study God's word on a Sunday and then forget all about it. We've got to be doers of the word, not hearers only. The man who looks intently, verse 25, into the perfect law that gives freedom... Poor old Luther. Do you remember last week I told you that Luther didn't like the letter to uh, a letter of James? Didn't like it at all. He thought it was far too schoolmasterly. James seemed to him to whisper to be wagging his finger. You've got to do this. You haven't done that. You're a naughty boy. And Luther didn't like that at all. But actually, he was wrong. Because James is saying... Look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. This law is the law which Jeremiah was talking about. You remember how he said it won't be necessary for anyone to teach his brother or to teach his neighbor and say, know the Lord, because they'll all know me, because my word will be planted in their hearts. Verses 26 and 27 lead on to chapter 2, and I, I, I say I, I want to just have a, just a brief peep into chapter 2. Verse 26 is all about the tongue, um, so I'm going to, well, not ignore it, but leave it on one side because it really belongs with chapter 3, which is where James talks about the tongue most particularly. So let's leave verse 26 to when we look at chapter 3. Verse 27 introduces chapter 2. Religion that our God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There's a lovely old saying in uh, the West Country. Everyone talking about Evelyn isn't going there. Or as... Sir John, St. John Chrysostom said, hell is paved with priests' skulls. There's a word for ministers. 
and professional religious people. We've got to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Religion that our God the Father and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the widows and the, widow, the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And it's, as I say, an introduction into chapter 2 because we have a number of clear pictures here in chapter 2. Let's have a look at the first four verses. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Supposing a man in your, comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What kind of Christianity is that? And yet in the history of the church, that's how it's been. The important people in front, the poorer people behind. And so often we identify people, don't we, by their appearance. We judge a book by its covering. I remember a, a Roman Catholic priest saying to me how ashamed he was one Sunday during the Mass. He saw a family at the back of the church, and they were standing there, not singing any hymns. And he thought, why aren't they singing hymns? They jolly well ought to sing. No reason why they shouldn't sing. So he took a hymn book, and he walked down the aisle, and he presented it to them. And the mother looked at him, and she said, Father, she said, just because we can't read, there's no reason why we shouldn't come to church. It's very easy, isn't it, to make judgments about people. And James says, that's no kind of Christianity at all. Listen, my dear brothers, verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he had promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, maybe he's not talking about you and me. But in so many ways, our comfortable lifestyle in the developed world is based on exploiting the poor. And we've got to be aware of that. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law's lawbreakers. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. He who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. You see, we can't pick and choose, can we? And this is why James is so important to study, to understand, to get to grips with, because it's talking about practical Christianity, walking the talk rather, walking the walk rather than talking the talk. Now verse 12 
and 13 may send a shiver of apprehension down your spine. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Dear friends, no Christian believer will ever be condemned. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us that very clearly. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, who are in Christ Jesus. But 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it says here, act as those who are going to be judged. But you mustn't be afraid of the judgment. Because it's a judgment of love. It's a judgment that will reveal finally how much he's loved us and how little we have understood that love. I'm convinced that the question he will ask us as we stand before his judgment seat is not, why haven't you done this or why have you done that, but why haven't you let me love you more? Because the kind of relationship we have with him is not the relationship of a master and servant. It's the relationship of a law that gives freedom. Mercy has been shown to us on the cross. We must show mercy to each other because mercy triumphs over judgment. And it seems to me that there is no better way to sum up Christian discipleship than that. Let us pray.